Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Ethan. How are you doing today? Doing great, Dennis. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. Um, if you wouldn't mind, though, since this is the first time on the podcast, would you mind doing just a quick introduction of yourself? Yeah, you bet. Uh, so I'm Ethan Miles. I'm a uh, board-certified family medicine physician, um, recently retired after 24 years in the Army, um, did Uniformed Services University uh, residency out of Fort Hood, and then following that went to 3rd Ranger Battalion as a battalion surgeon, and then uh, the Regimental Special Troops Battalion. And after about five years, took a two-year break and then went back as the regimental surgeon from 2013 to 2018. Uh, following that, I did a kind of double stint of the Maneuver Center of Excellence Surgeon um, and then was also assigned to uh, one of the battalions, 1504 up at 82nd as one of the remote docs. Um, and then... Just recently retired and now started on as the chief medical officer for North American Rescue. Perfect. So definitely lots of experience, both conventional and uh, in the special operations community. Um, and what I wanted to talk to you about is uh, fairly recently, uh, I think on Facebook, but I'm sure it was on others, you had made a post about uh, patient positioning and uh I guess, why, why do I need to even worry about patient positioning? The litters are flat. Obviously, God intended our patients to be like that. Absolutely, right? As long as you're in a good position, who cares about your patient, right? That's, that's the right? most important thing. Um, so, I mean, really, it was you talking with you on uh, patient pr positioning and um, how we might be able to uh, help make that easier through product development. Um, and it's, it's kind of one of those forgotten about things, um, that people certainly, I would say actually most people, um, not all, but most people don't train that and don't really practice that. And so I think a lot of times simple, low cost, cheaper, free interventions get overlooked. Um, and I think especially as you start looking at along field care, uh, which is certainly the way that the DOD is is kind of pivoting and looking to, um, I think as, as you look at prolonged field care, it's a lot of those simple, um, things that, that we can pull from that and use as, as medics and providers in the far forward environment. Perfect. So I guess what, I mean, you know, when I think about positioning I think about TBI and I grab whatever happens to be around me and shove it under the patient's head and now TBI is fixed. Um, I guess that and what other things is patient positioning useful for? Yeah, so um, certainly TBI. So, you know, first off, too, I'm not an ICU physician. Um, and so if you really want to get into patient positioning and changes in positioning, especially for ventilated patients, um, really sick patients, get some ICU time. Um, go talk with some ICU nurses, some of the ICU experts. Um, and they'll kind of, they'll give you a deep, deep education. Um, so TBI is one of the things that we first think about when we think about elevating the head of the bed, um, and patient positioning, um, pretty simple, uh, and 
likely effective intervention. Um, jury's still out on really definitive data that says that absolutely is going to help improve outcomes. Um, but likely very little harm that you would actually be doing and probably would be getting some help. So in my kind of litmus test, that, that passes right there. And, and it's kind of one of those, we might as well go for it. Um, you just got to improvise a little bit since like you mentioned, litters aren't, litters are designed to transport patients, not necessarily treat, hold and, and, uh, and help patients out. It's designed to get them from point A to point B um, in a manner that's most efficient for us, not the patient. <laughs> right. So, so certainly TBI, um, you know, generally when you talk about TBI and um, elevation of the head of the bed, you know, somewhere around 30 to 60 degrees, there's, um, there's a lot of look at the, looks at that. Um, if you, you know, cruise through the studies, you can find studies to show anything, but generally um, it's, it's accepted that ICP goes down as you elevate the head and then it starts to increase as you lay flat. Um, that's been shown in, in healthy patients. So kind of extrapolate that to a patient where we're worried about increased intracranial pressure. And let's go ahead and elevate the head of the bed, see if we can help with some of that. So that's, that's certainly one of the ones that we kind of look at first um, as, a, as an indication for our first, first look at um, how do we change a patient position to help them out. Okay. Um, so, you know, in some of the training I do, um, you know, I found that, you know, even with just oxygenation, you know, the Soros only gives you so much or some kind of oxygen generator only gives you so much oxygen tanks last only so long. Um, just through patient positioning, I've actually been able to, you know, increase SpO2 just by changing the position. I mean, is that... Am I imagining that happened or did I get, was a wish granted? Right. Yeah, well, I didn't watch it at that time, but you know, <laughs> likely, likely that you were right. You know what you're talking about. Certainly. Um, so, yeah, so, um, so that kind of moves on to another indication for um, patient positioning and that's ventilation. So um, when you look at the lungs uh, and how they're able to exchange oxygen um, and how we're able to get air in and out, it, you know, it, it's certainly beneficial if we can get patients into a position other than laying supine um, on their back like we always like to put them in. Um, so when you do lay down, even if you're healthy, um, your lug volume uh, gets reduced, right? Part of that's because your mediastinum, maybe a little bit of abdominal pressure um, increase as well. And then there's some impedance that you could have to ventilation. Um, there's also some regional distribution changes for ventilation and perfusion when you're laying down um, supine. <clears throat> so we look at that and say, hey, how can we help this out, right? So you elevate them up and they're going to get a little bit better lung volume. Um, they're going to get a little bit better mechanics as we try to ventilate them. And that could be either mechanical ventilation or the patient breathing on their own. Um, just look at, look at some people when they lay down and not to get too far into airway yet, but you know, as, as people lay down, that's generally not the most comfortable position. And, and you can see that, you know, patients that aren't oxygenating well, um, it can make them feel very panicked. Um, it's not uh -huh. a good feeling to be hypoxic. That's a very kind of bad feeling. Um, and so a lot of page, times patients will naturally kind of sit up um, and, and feel like it helps them breathe better. And it's, it's like I've always told all my medics, um, 
in general, you know, patients are really good at breathing. People are good at breathing. They want to keep breathing. Yep. <laughs> so let them, let them do it. So. Right. Hence like the tripod position. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, which, which brings in the other one that, um, has, has gotten a lot more attention over the last several years, but you know, the airway, airway management, specifically mm-hmm. looking at patients and how to help them manage an airway, um, you know, for, again, kind of traditional is that patient's going to lay down and then you're going to take care of them. Um, and fortunately, um, we've moved more into let the patient do what they need to maintain their airway. And it's, I mean, it's pretty incredible how well patients can take care of themselves sometimes, you know, sometimes, sometimes you just got to not get in their way and they're going to do right. the right thing. And then we, we mess them up when we give them a bunch of medications and make them go into positions that they didn't want to be in the first place. Right. I mean, obviously this is not like a magic thing. Sometimes even, you know, just changing their position is not going to win the day. Sometimes you do have to do that escalation of force and, you know, take the patient's airway, put them on a ventilator, but in an interim or uh, when that equipment may not be available, you know, is this a viable option? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you got to do what you can. And again, patient positioning, um, you can do without any equipment, doesn't cost you anything. It may cost you a little time and effort, um, but you don't have to have special equipment. You don't even have to have real advanced training, right? I mean, it's pretty straightforward and basic. So, um, and some of the times, like you mentioned, all it does is it buys you a little bit of time, right? Especially when it comes to to airway, you know, it, it can buy you time until you can get your crike set up or whatever next intervention you need to do. Um, you know, the one thing I mentioned too, though, in, in airway, if you're positioning a patient for an obstructed airway or a pending obstructed airway, um, as you do go to crike them, that is where your position becomes a lot more important, right? Uh-huh. And you can certainly crike someone when they're sitting up, um, but you really got to think about that patient positioning and what position is going to set you, the provider, up for success. So getting your equipment out, having your patient prep, making sure their their head's med- midline, their neck's midline, they're not twisted around so you hit a, you know, the jugular instead of the trachea, stuff like that. Um, that's that's one time when you kind of say, okay, my, my position of comfort um, it's going to take precedence for, you know, a minute or two. And then we get the patient right back to where they need to be. Yeah. I mean, that makes a hundred percent sense. And it makes the whole procedure go faster when you're not fighting, you know, patient positioning, trying to get your gear, you feel uncomfortable. I mean, that just extends out that whole uh, procedure and it makes it also a lot more likely you're going to fail. Yeah. Do you, do you guys at the schoolhouse, do you, do you practice um, alternate positions for crikes or is it kind of primarily? Well, I mean, do we practice it? You know, it's classic, um, classic positioning, right? Patients always laying down. They're always unconscious and still. Um, Where the extra training comes in is usually when the guy rushes in to do the thing, right? And he didn't position the patient. So he's, you know, sitting up or he's on his back or like whatever crazy situation like this is completely the, the student's creation. He, you know, he chose this adventure and <laughs> um, is is moving forward with it. But I wouldn't say um, it's a routine practice. Um, it's one of those things that people 
kind of mention, but then when it comes time to real hands-on skill, um, generally it's on their back. Um, and I'm not super uncomfortable with that. You know, I think, um, you know, you considering how frequently they get to train in the school, um, I would, I would think let's show them this is, you know, the best case scenario. This is what you want. And, you know, if you can get that down, which I would argue that we're good at, okay, just because the frequency we train, I would not say we're great at, um, because of just the frequent, once you leave the schoolhouse, you know, the frequency of training that guys actually get those skills degrade, you know, um, it's like any low but, frequency, high importance, you know, right? skill, and that's that's certainly one of them. Not not many cranks are being done, um, but when right. but when you do need to do it, you need to nail it. Right, absolutely. And I mean, even you know, talking to CRNAs, um, like just the other day, I did a podcast with uh, one of the the Miles CRNAs, and um, you know, he was like, "I'm going to go on vacation for a few weeks, and I'm going to feel rusty when I go." when I go back to work, you know, and that's somebody who does this, you know, multiple times every day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not the, just the medic's fault or the medics are being lazy. They're just not necessarily getting the opportunities uh, to stay on that, on that edge where they, where they would like them to be anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That's the rub, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we're talking about all these amazing things and, uh, the miracles that can happen when you just change the patient's position. What can be some of the downsides of changing a position on maybe a patient who isn't quite ready to be jostled around? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the first things that comes to my mind is um, anytime you move a posi- you move a patient, um, you're risking the last intervention that you did or any number of the interventions that you did, right? Which is why we always preach every time you move a patient, recheck all your interventions, right? So uh-huh. if you if you applied a junction or you applied a binder, even if you packed a wound and now you've moved them, you run the risk of dislodging that hemostatic or that junctional, right? And then and then you get a rebleed. Um, so that's one, you know, certainly with airway, we're always conscious about um, losing losing an airway and, and validating, making sure that it's uh, in the proper position. Um, you know, chest tube, did you block it off? Did you kink it? Do we need to, you know, put another needle D in as we do it? Um, and some of these are a little, some of these actually make it um, easier on you as a provider, right? So if we've got, um, if you've done a chest tube on the left side and you roll them over onto the right side and they're kind of in a recovery position on the right side, then that's a lot easier for you. Right. Then you can, you can manage that. And it's right there in front of you, especially if you know, the right side's good, put that side down and and you got more room on the left side. Um, so that's, so that's a good one. It's, it's always a little bit tough on, um, you know, some of the junctional wounds, um, transporting those, right. Just because junctionals typically are a little bit unstable, uh, difficult to get in the right spot. Yeah. You know, always you got to be super careful, you know, whenever you move, um, especially when you're dealing with like improvised, like improvised junctionals, notorious, like you get it to work and then, you know, a butterfly lands on his forehead and like suddenly (laughs) like comes loose, you know? Um, 
But, uh, you know, it's just kind of, it's one of those things where you just have to train to make a bomb proof or as near a bomb proof uh, type intervention. Um, you know, we, that's one of the things I think I, I would also like to, if I could be king for a day as far as training goes, is how to really bomb proof your equipment as far as like those IVs. They love to just jump out of people's arms because we're putting like a, you know, a one inch piece of tape on the tubing when, you know, in reality, I'm, I'm using duct tape and wrapping that guy's arm because I really do not want that thing to fall out, you yep. know, or, you know, securing the crikes and securing your junctionals or what or whatever intervention that you would be really sad if it fell out, you know, making sure that that thing is is secured really well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, other than threats to your interventions, um, you know, I've also noticed when I'm changing a patient position, you know, maybe oxygenation improves, but I also saw, see some effects to hemodynamics, kind of like uh, like um, an orthostatic type hypotension. Is that um, is that kind of universal? Uh, I wouldn't say it's universal. Um, it you know, it's every patient's going to respond a little bit different, right? Because okay. they've got different physiology, different baseline characteristics. So, um, and sometimes patients respond in ways that, that they shouldn't, right? Okay. Like they don't, not all your patients read the books and know that, okay, the head of the bed's elevated 45 degrees. Now I should be ventilating better and I should drop my pressures, but, but they do for some reason. So, um, I think that gets back to our, our last point of anytime you make an intervention, you got to reassess, right? Yep. So you made an intervention. So in the case of a patient that's not oxygenating well, you make an intervention, you elevate the head of the bed, maybe 45 degrees, and then you want to watch them, right? And you want to reassess and, and see how they're doing with that intervention. Um, if they seem to be doing worse than that intervention, no problem. We can buy some time. We can lay them back down. Um, and then give us a little pause to think about what's going on. But I wouldn't say yeah. there's a, a universe, really with anything, I wouldn't say there's a universal response with with patients as far as um, positioning changes go. Yeah, yeah. You know, and always, you know, one thing I always preach is, you know, build yourself a, a safety net. If you do an intervention and things go south, whether that's, you know, administering some kind of medication that could be, you know, whatever, right? Changing their position. You're going to pay for it one way or the other. Something is going to, you're going to gain in one area, you're going to lose in another. And if you build yourself a safety net, so when you start to lose in an area, then you're able to intervene in a positive way, right? So I'm going to, I need to change this patient's position because oxygenation is bad and I'm, I have no other way to increase his oxygenation. However, uh, I expect that his pressures are going to go down or that's the thing I'm worried about. Well, then, you know, be prepared to give him blood, you know, be prepared to get, do something so that doesn't happen. Or if it does happen, it's not nearly as bad. It's not catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I was, I always taught my medics um, what's killing my patient. Right. And so they'd hear me over their shoulders. They're, you know, doing a patient trauma lane and say, okay, what's killing your patient right now? What's the number one thing that's killing them? Okay, cool. Yeah. What are you doing to treat that? All right. What's the number two thing that's trying to kill, right? Something's trying to kill your patient. So your job is to go through, find that and intervene. 
Mm -hmm. So, you know, you won me over, right? I'm going to position my patients properly from now and forever. Um, you know, you mentioned that this is, you know, it's free or very low cost. I mean, in my, it seems really inconvenient when I have to shove my aid bag or what other gear underneath this guy. Is it, you know, from an operational side, since, you know, you've been in the Ranger Regiment, from an operational side, is this something that's worth buying gear? Or is this something that just go ahead and go off the environment? You'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm never, I never cease to be amazed at how creative medics can get when you give them a task and very, very little resources, right? They're really yeah. kind of figuring it out. Um, I do think, though, that there is some, there's areas for equipment improval, right? So, I mean, we've had litters with the same basic design um, for a long, long time. Yep. Um, and so is there a way that we can we can design these litters better is there a way that we can without adding a whole lot of weight we can you know make it so you can do some some changes i i think that's absolutely uh an area to look into and that's kind of one of the things that i'm excited about on the on the civilian retired side now is um you can um you can be a lot more flexible sometimes on the outside and yeah. say, okay, here's a problem. And then we can put resources towards it and, and move a little bit quicker um, when you are industry versus, you know, trying to talk industry into it. Um, so yeah, absolutely. think so. I don't, I don't know, you know, where specifically this would go in each situation, right? Is this part of, right. would an add on piece be part of a prolonged field care kind of, um, speedball uh or is this part of a vehicle kit so if you do get into a situation where you need to position that patient a little bit differently you can add that on um, it's certainly going to be hard to talk uh your squad guys into carrying a lot more than a than a litter or a schedule right, right? hey i'm going to add on so weight and cubes is absolutely essential if you're going to go far, far forward. However, most of the interventions and discussions that we're having um, is less so immediate point of injury and becomes increasingly more important, I would say, as you get away from the X. Okay. So, you know, and, and to be honest, I've never been a gear guy. Um, I don't look for the, the best, gucciest, <laughs> coolest thing. I try to find what works. And just train with that until I can find something that works better or uh, I can become more aware of what the downfalls of something is and look for something that doesn't have that. Um, however, uh, I've definitely seen a lot of improvised things in my time. And generally, I've found the pre-made things generally work better <laughs> because they're purpose built. But... I've also seen improvised things work very well as, as well. Yeah. Um, if I'm using an aid bag to keep someone uh, up upright, I'm going to want that aid bag back. <laughs> I'm going to need yeah, that at some point. Bag, right? So right. yeah, absolutely. It, especially, especially with patient positioning and if they're going to be there for any prolonged period of time, right? Again, if you're going to go from the mode of transporting a patient to a patient's going to be on, this litter for a little while, then we need to really think about how we can best set that up 
for the patient. And like you said, a lot of times that, that means a pre-made device that, or right. add on that, that we can make. Yeah. And I mean, now that we're you know, talking about devices, one, you know, one thing I was thinking about, um, they recently came a report out of Ukraine that 10% of their hospitals have been destroyed. So, you know, when you're thinking about casualties, how many beds do you have? You know, how many hospital beds do you have? When those things start running out because they've been blown up, what's going to be left? It's going to be your litter, mm-hmm. you know? And you have an incredibly mobile thing that a patient can be on. How can I improve that and now start to create an improvised version of that hospital bed? You know, is that kind of a viable thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. And and when you look at like Ukraine or you look at um, some of the LISCO discussion that's going on, um, mobility is a key, right? Mm-hmm. We've, we've got to be mobile. We've got to be able to clear the battlefield. We've got to be able to pick up from one position and move to another, maintain smaller footprints. And so if if you're a casualty that may not make it back to rear echelons for you know, hours or days or weeks, then we've got to start looking at that litter as a patient bed, right? Uh-huh. So if you go, you know, just outside my window, there's, you know, Piedmont, so big ICU, right? If you go to their ICU, they've got tricked out multi-thousand dollar ICU beds that'll tilt patients and rotate them and do all this kind of stuff. Um, so what can we take from the ICU? What kind of ideas can we steal and then bring them to the battlefield. So if you are that patient and you get put on a litter at the point of injury, and now you're going to be on that thing days, either in transport vehicles or in CCPs or makeshift field hospitals, roll ones, we've got to modify that thing for you. So you're not getting, you know, pressure sores and you're not, you know, there, I think every medic listening has probably slept on a litter. Um, and, and, get sleep deprived enough and it's comfy, but I would not want to be on that thing and not moving um, right. for hours. You better give me a lot of ketamine. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it, and it's not, these are not complex answers, right? You can essentially take that, that, uh, you know, ICU bed, right? And essentially you could probably in the size of a small backpack, recreate it with, you know, got, air mattresses you could have litter bags you could have litter poles you know in a litter and a very small footprint that is pretty easily transportable you know recreate that that icu level bed maybe it wouldn't be as great but definitely would be enough to do the job yep you get some you know if you can i think if you can modify it so you can get the patient up 30 to 60 degrees you could do right or left lateral uh, positioning, you know, then I think, I think you're doing great stuff. Yeah. Able to get the patient's legs up, things like that. Yeah. Um, now we talked about, you know, know, Lisco PFC extended care things. Do you think positioning has any place in like T-Tri-C? Um, I, I think it, does um for the most you know it's what's your definition of 
to try C, right? Sure. So, I of mean, course. strictly getting off the X speed is the most important yeah. thing, right? So that trumps all, get your patient off the X, get them to a secure area. So, yep. you know, that we're good is when you start looking at the early interventions that'll help the most. Um, I think the two biggest things that come to mind is number one is airway position. That's an, that's an immediate, but that, you know, a lot of that goes back to our training of where we're not forcing a patient to lay down when they can't maintain their airway laying down. Right. And we let them sit up or be in recovery position on the litter or the skid codes. We're dragging them. Um, yep. And then the other one would be TBI. I'm, I'm a little less worried about, you know, some of the, some of the nursing stuff and rotating them when we're in, when we're in TC3, yeah, yeah. elevating it for, you know, extremities for burns and all that. We can do that, but, but not in the TC3 care under fire, uh, technical field care phases. Yeah. No, that makes a hundred percent sense. You know, leaving, you know, nobody's worried about bed sores, you know, when you're like getting yeah. shot at, right. <laughs> so like yeah. you're gonna, like those are all living people problems, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so first you gotta save the guy's life. Um, but like you mentioned, you know, even a T tri C positioning can definitely aid you rather than hinder you anyway. Yep. Um, you know, and also another thing kind of, uh, a little bit off this topic, but just to take an advantage of somebody who, uh, was helping the Ranger battalion in the, in, uh, during GWAT. Why do you think Ranger battalion did such a great job as far as reducing preventable death? Like if you could summarize it. <laughs> um, all right. Super biased here. So that's my disclaimer. Sure. Right? <laughs> uh, right? So I think a few things. Um, one is, it, you know, there's a, there's an article that we wrote with um, Colonel Coatwall, Monty, uh, myself, Kirk Conklin, um, and a few others that were on there that really kind of talked about the culture and, and how they implemented a lot of these things before guys like me came along. Um, but one is early leadership uh, involvement. So when McChrystal made medical one of the big four, um, I think that was pretty, rev it seems pretty basic, but it was pretty revolutionary, right? That he said, medical is going to be one of the top four things that you guys need to be trained on and be, and be a master of, right? And really master the basics. So that implemented a culture in Ranger Regiment where everybody is expected to care for a casualty. Whether you're the RTO, you're the cook, you're the RCO, it doesn't matter. You are going to do Ranger First Responder. Um, so I think that was one. And along with that culture came a lot of flexibility um, and empowerment for guys like me to come along uh, and say, Hey, I think we need to be doing this. And really it was like, okay, doc, you do doc stuff. And if that's what you want to do, then you do it. So we were able to form these teams and really kind of innovate and go. Um, so I think, you know, where we've saved the most, you look at like Ranger first responder, having people be masters of the basics of TC three, um, far and away, that was probably the most important. Um, and then as we kind of go up the scale and we had advanced, uh, Ranger first responders, uh, we modified that program and, and we made, you know, 11 Bravos that were, you know, phenomenal medics. I mean, they were beaten, beaten medics in, in some instances um, when you went and looked at them versus the rest of the army. Um, and then, and then our Sockums, who I hold near and dear to my heart, um, our Ranger medics, I think are, 
they're best in the business. I think they have a, they have a very good uh, ability to span the, are you a medic or are you a shooter? Right. And that's where you see different, especially soft units and they'll tip the spectrum, right. Of no, I'm a shooter and I'm going to let my med skills kind of go. Yes. I'm technically the medic, but whatever. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to shooter. And then you get some that are medics and really not proficient at, at shoot, move and communicate being on the battlefield. And so I think you've got to have a good blend. Um, and so I think, you know, over the years, um, they, you know, year after year, they just do a great job of that at Ranger Regiment. Yeah. I mean, I think it shows, especially when they, they come to the refresher courses, um, generally very, very proficient. And, uh, I think it's just simply because they practice at it. I guess there's no magic to it. Yeah. Well, and part of it, you know, I was fortunate enough to go down to third battalion, uh, a couple months ago and they were doing, uh, their two week Ranger medic assessment and validation. Right. And Mm -hmm. so there's not many units that will run their medics every year through an assessment and validation and truly an assessment where at the end of that two weeks, you're either fired because you're not cutting it. You know, you're rehabilitated or you maintain your job or they say, you know what, you're doing great. We're going to, we're going to start advancing you. Um, so it's a true, you know, can you, can you perform as advertised? Uh, and right. I think in medicine, we all tend to um, assume that we're good and say, yep, I got it. And I know those protocols, but how often do we truly test ourselves and put ourselves up in front of others and see if we're really cutting it? Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a complaint that I've, I've voiced to the other instructors that I'm with is, you know, medics, you know, we love to talk like way the frick up here because <laughs> it makes us feel good. It makes us look good. Yep. Um, and you know, all the things, you know, everybody wants to feel special. Right. Yep. Um, but well, especially when it comes senior, right. And so like, oh, yeah. how many times do you see the senior medics standing hands in pockets and pointing out the things that junior medics are due? No, 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 man. Of course you get down there and do it too. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget my first, uh, CTM that I did with third ranger battalion. I was a student and I mean, they were, uh-huh. they didn't let up on me at all because i was the doc i mean and i fell on my face and i learned a ton yeah yeah i mean people like this is a serious business that we're in Mm -hmm. and people have to let go of their freaking egos and open their ears sometimes and just absorb right just learn as much as you can you can talk smack about somebody else after you've already demonstrated you have the the collateral to go ahead and do that right Yep. Um, but at first you have to perform. That's yeah. rule number one. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's kind of what I had. Uh, do you, did we miss anything or? No, I, I mean, I thought, um, you know, for the, for the viewers, you brought up some great points about if you look through the CPGs, which everybody should be doing, how many of the CPGs mention? Um, patient positioning, right? And that really that really hit home with me when you brought that up. And I think it's like five of the CPGs, right, have patient positioning. And so I, I never really thought about that because I think that's something as you look through the CPG, 
you skip over because it's not sexy, right? There's, yeah. there's nothing sexy about, in fact, I'm sure when your viewers are looking and they see, you know, oh, patient positioning, like snooze fest, right? And hopefully they're still right. awake. But, but so it's not sexy, but you look through and you go, man, I've skipped over all that stuff. And I never really noticed that, even though I'd read them all, you kind of go, yep, patient positioning, got it. But then do we really translate that to our patients, to how we train and to how we actually treat patients? Um, so I thought that was a great point that you brought up. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, people pass over basics because they're looking for that. I think they're looking for that, uh, that nugget of information that, you know, helps you shine above others. And yeah. it's kind of goes away. This like, you know, when people talk about nursing care, they're like, Ugh, like baths, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but there's so much more. Um, and when you, when you really think about it, who's taking care of your patients in the hospital, nursing staff yep. you know um but uh but anyway um hey ethan you know i really appreciate you coming on yeah absolutely thanks for uh thanks for having me on i really appreciate it. you're doing awesome work on this so it's an honor to be part of it that's it for today's podcast be sure to go to our website www.prolongfieldcare.org find us on facebook youtube instagram Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out. Great boy is waiting there for you.